But there are populists who appeal to people who aren't Nazis and who are just disappointed and, and confused. Americans should be interested in the same way as Americans should be interested about the future of their own democracy. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're discussing populism and politics in Europe, focusing on this weekend's events, which included the formation of a new government in Germany, as well as surprising uh, Italian election results. To help us understand these developments, I'm joined today by Natalie Tocci, the director of the Institute for International Affairs in Rome. She is also the special advisor to the High Representative of the European Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, Federico Mogherini, and an expert on European foreign policy. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you. Also on the line is Constance Stelzenmüller, who is the inaugural Robert Bosch Senior Fellow for the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. She also previously served as the Senior Transatlantic Fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States and has expertise on both German foreign policy and European politics. Welcome, Constance. Good to have you. Thank you for having me. This weekend was marked by two uh, important and distinct events in Europe. Uh, for Europeanists, there was rejoicing uh, after Germany finally formed a government after after nearly six months of negotiations and uncertainty. And then barely 12 hours later, as Europeanists were celebrating that result, uh, they came crashing down to earth with, uh, with the announcement of how Italian national elections had come out, in which populists and Eurosceptic parties uh, captured over half the vote. So we want to you know, really dive in and figure out what does all of this mean for Italy, for Germany, for Europe, and, and even for Western democracy more generally. To start off, um, I want to start with you, Natalie, with the uh, recent results coming out of Italy. Could you briefly share with us you know, what were the results of the election and why were so many people surprised by what happened? Well, I mean, actually, Italians were not particularly surprised by the uh, by the results. Uh, I mean, if one could describe the results in a nutshell, uh, I think it would be fair to say uh, you basically have uh, the overtaking of uh, Matteo Salvini's Lega. For the first time, he uh, overtook uh, Berlusconi's Forza Italia, which is a more uh, traditional centre-right uh, party. So that's one, one element to it. The other element uh, is the incredible uh, rise of the Five Star Movement, that describes itself as neither left nor right, simply anti-establishment. This is basically a big win for populists. So essentially what you see is, as I said, two big winners, the Five Star Movement and the Northern League, uh, a complete collapse of the Democrat Party, which I think is in line with the collapse of social democracy uh, elsewhere in Europe and, and beyond. So a Democrat Party led by Matteo Renzi that went from uh, 40%, crashing down to 20% or less rather than 20%, uh, today. So those are the three big stories emerging from the elections alongside, as I said, the final death of Silvio Berlusconi that is probably the silver lining to this whole story. Okay, if that's how the parties fared in this election, what happens next? How do they come together and form a new coalition government? Um, so in terms of, you know, where, where this uh, leaves us, it essentially leaves us with... Uh, three fairly unfeasible options. The right put together, uh, Berlusconi's party, Matteo Salvini's uh, league, together with Fratelli d'Italia, which is a very small 
uh, sort of neo-fascist uh, party, they, they're about at 37% of the vote. Now, to get a, a majority of seats in Parliament, you need to go over 40%. Now, where there would be the numbers uh, to govern would be a government uh, between the Five Star Movement and the League. In terms of party political program, what they have in common uh, is a number of issues which, which position both parties on the closed side of the open versus closed axis. The reason why I don't think it's possible for them to form a governing coalition is that I don't think that uh, Salvini, the leader of the League, would actually go into government uh, with the Five Star Movement. Why do I think that? Uh, well, if he has the opportunity of being number one of the right, as opposed to being a junior partner uh, in a neither left nor right uh, coalition, well, considering that Italy is overall, overall a conservative country, you wait for your turn to come. Now, this leaves a third option, which is a government uh, between the Five Star Movement and the Democrat Party. Now, they would also have the, the numbers to govern. My guess is that the President of the Republic, Sergio Mattarella, is actually going to push very strongly for the Democrat Party or parts thereof, if there is a split within the Democrat Party, which I think is actually quite likely, uh, is going to push the Democrat Party to join the Five Star Movement in a government so as to save Italy from itself. Terrific. Thank you for that that really comprehensive overview. And Constance, you have been uh, watching the situation in Germany evolve over the last six months, which were set up by a very similar kind of election outcome, where we saw the two centrist parties' um, totals fall, the rise of more extreme um, parties, and then six months of negotiations uh, that just produced the government and actually the restoring of the grand coalition of the two centrist parties. As you listen to Natalie's story of, of uh, the situation in, in, um, in Italy, which parts resonate with, with you and what are some of the broader trends you see going on that help us understand both what's going on in, in Germany as well as the situation we're seeing unfolding more broadly in Europe? Um, uh, thank you, Brian. Um, I, I will say in defense of my country, it's been five months, not six months, but, um, the, uh, <laughs> sorry to exaggerate ever the American. No, 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 no worries. But, but still that, that for Germans who have never, uh, been in a situation like this in their post-war history of German democracy, uh, that has been hair raising enough. And of course, having an unclear outcome, um, was also a first in German post-war history. So those two things um, for Germans who sort of like to have stability, predictability, and clarity in their politics have all been sort of hair blowback time um, for quite a while. That, that said, it's not as though Germany has been ungoverned. Um, the previous government of Angela Merkel um, has simply been in a caretaker mode. So you could argue um, that the country has been run reasonably competently by people who have by now some experience, uh, more than a decade, in fact. But of course, um, I'm being half facetious, a caretaker government can't, um, in, in constitutional tradition, of course, uh, make any big policy moves. Um, and that is, of course, what people are expecting now, because there is a sense in the country and, and of course, among Germany's friends as well, that we are seeing um, political, cultural, 
shifts in much the way that that other countries, including Italy, are seeing that Germany's politics will be a lot less stable, a lot more volatile and variable in the future, and that very large policy questions now remain to be dealt with. The uh, impact of digitalization, um, artificial intelligence um, on the German economy, uh, and on society, and and of course the ongoing impact that that uh, sort of if you want to call it that the social media democracy have on our representative institutions, and finally we are still dealing with a host of external risks and threat, Russian meddling, uh, Chinese meddling for that matter, uh, a very fraught transatlantic alliance um, with an, a White House tr- uh, threatening tariffs that Europeans are deeply concerned about. Um, there is no shortage of of very large issues to be dealt with going forward. So, Constance, as you listened and watched the debates in Italy, there was a lot of concern about corruption, a lot of concern about the responsiveness of government. Um, to what extent do those issues resonate um, and and map on to the German experience? And to what sure. extent is really the the political dynamics driving what broadly gets ca- characterized as populism? To what extent is it different in Germany as well? Well, I think I think that obviously there is uh, a populist groundswell all across the transatlantic space in America as as in Europe, and um, the way that I like to frame this is with a sort of little quadrant. Um, I think we have to make a distinction between real and imaginary grievances and legitimate and illegitimate. <laughs> and uh, what I mean by that is is the following. Um, Anti-Semitic grievances, anti-foreigner grievances, to me, may be real, but they're not legitimate. Um, grievances about the lack of hospitals, um, bus lines, and other public transport in rural spaces, or the lack of broadband in rural spaces in Germany, are real and legitimate grievances, and it's something that the government uh, needs to do better at. Then somewhere in between those two extremes, there is the question of uh, whether Germany's representative elites, the the parties, the mainstream parties have paid enough attention to people's fears about the future of democracy, the future of their prosperity. And while Germany, in comparison to other European economies, and perhaps also in comparison to America, is a country that is very prosperous and has a relatively little inequality, Um, That inequality span has actually been growing, and there are regions in Germany um, and and urban spaces where there are concerns about inequality and um, social exclusion. And story is partly an East German story, although not only. Um, But it's clear that there is a post-reunification 25-year-old resentment in some pockets of East Germany about having been having been left behind. Um, I have some sympathy for that, I have to say. I, in the early 90s, was a young journalist working as an intern on a Berlin daily paper, and I was fascinated by these incredibly onerous and, and wrenching social and political transformation processes that were taking place in East Berlin 
and uh, in the new Bundesländer, the new, the new East German states. And so whenever there was a story to be covered there, I used to, I used to be out the door because, before anybody could stop me. And I had a general sense that, that they were really thrilled and just ran with every opportunity that they could see um, and who have passed this on to their children. Um, and then there were people for whom all of this was too much. Some of them have been deeply invested in the uh, East German state and perhaps even in its repressive institutions like the Stasi found a way of engaging with, with the new uh, with with reunified Germany, and there is therefore sort of a, a a a schizophrenic attitude in a lot of East Germany. There are those who feel that they've been great that they were given the greatest opportunity of their lives, and those who felt resentful and left behind. And again, in between, there is also a gray zone where people felt that even if they 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 were happy to be liberated from the communist East German government. They were being carpetbagged, as it were, to use an American term, by West Germans who came in and got the best jobs in the new administrative structures. Um, and I think that these, the, all of these things in East Germany have created a sense of resentment and have proved to be fertile ground for the populists and, and if I may say, the rat catchers. Um, the rat catchers, by, by that I mean the genuine neo-Nazis. But there are populists who appeal to people who aren't Nazis and who are just disappointed and, and confused. And there I think we have to do better with with with, with policies. Um, and and that, that is something that, that the new German, German government under Chancellor Merkel, which, which will be voted in on the 14th of March next week, um, will have to pay very close attention to. Um, generally, I think because we now have a seven-party system with the uh, alternative for Germany, the right-wing party, um, I think we're looking, we're going to look at much more volatile and chaotic politics. But I will also say that based on um, what we've already been seeing in debates in the the, the new legislature, the Bundestag, um, it's also reinvigorated German democracy. The AfD have made some fairly outrageous proposals. And they've gotten some very vigorous proposals, uh, sorry, counter um, responses um, in Bundestag debates. And a an institution that used to be, um, shall I say, occasionally a gentle snooze fest is suddenly becoming a lot more interesting. And these videos of these exchanges are being posted on, on social media. And and I think that that a lot of people are feeling that this situation is actually, in some ways, oddly and counterintuitively, a boon to German democracy. That that's really fascinating. I want to switch back now, Natalie, to you in Italy. Constance has really laid out a a, a trajectory in in German politics, which sounds like, in her analysis, is bringing things back to the center and bringing. Um, bringing the, certainly the coalition um, back to the center. You, when you were describing political possibilities in, in Italy, also emphasized the potential for, for a kind of a centrist-controlled um, outcome. Will that kind of response uh, be effective in answering the concerns of the folks who are disaffected, who did come out and vote so strongly for change and against establishments and elites that we saw in Italy. Is this a, can this be an effective response that can restore kind of a political center in Italy? I mean, 
you know, what I would say is, you know, if there were to be a government uh, in which there is the five-star movement very clearly in the lead, and then uh, the Democrat Party or parts of the Democrat Party being the junior partner in a coalition government, then in a sense, this is this is not uh, a return of the centre or certainly not a return of the establishment. This is for the first time, you know, putting anti-establishment forces bang into power. Now, putting them bang into power, but with a constraining or containing uh, influence of an establishment party or remnants thereof, uh, is probably a way to, uh, how can I put it, avoid them doing too much damage. In an overall scenario, which is one of damage uh, limitation, you would have as a cost to factor in, Firstly, the fact this would be probably the, the end of social democracy in Italy as we've known it. And then the second point is, is connected to Europe, really. Uh, and is the fact that whatever happens in Italy, so even in the event of a government between the Five Star Movement and the Democrat Party, uh, let alone any of the other two options that I was uh, sort of outlining earlier, but whatever of those three scenarios, what we're basically seeing is a significantly weakened Italy in a moment, at a historical moment, in which following uh, last Sunday in Germany, uh, the Franco-German engine is ready to restart. Uh, it will probably restart on those aspects that they can agree on. The danger is that the kind of agreement that France and Germany will come up with, without an Italy which is fully participating, will imply that the reforms that are agreed on uh, are not going to be conducive to Italian interests. So I see a longer term uh, potential impact of fueling further Euroscepticism in the country if the perception of Italians is one which Italy and Italians will feel more and more distant uh, from, from themselves. And this has a longer term impact in terms of uh, fueling further Euroscepticism in the country. And Constance, from your perspective, thinking about Europe's future, if Italy moves in that direction and, and even with this election result, how does that affect the future of Europe? Where do you see it providing uh, restraints or challenges for Europe? Well, um, Natalie's right. Uh, that That is, is an important um, blow to Franco-German efforts to restart the European engine. Um, for the simple reason that the Italians and, in fact, the south of Europe have security concerns related to uh, tensions in northern Africa and the Middle East, um, both uh, military and um, relating to the Syria conflict, Israel-Palestine, but also migration outflows from Africa, instability in Tunisia and in Libya. And it is more than time for Europe to attempt to broker a security consensus between the concerns of the Nordics and the Eastern Europeans, uh, greatly shared by Germany in particular, about the threats and risks emanating from Russia and the concerns of southern EU states. And with an Italy that's going to be very inward looking and very chaotic, that is going to be quite difficult to do. And um, it's worth reminding ourselves that the Italians have pretty much been coping bilaterally with um, the situation in Libya from the European side. Um, so it's been Americans and Italians that have been most engaged there. And I think that that is not good for Italy and it's not good for Europe. 
Um, so all of us have an interest, I think, in instability in, in Italy, um, because the Italians have had a very important voice in the past in these kinds of debates. One of our Facebook uh, followers on the Deep Dish on Global Affairs Facebook group asked about these developments really in in what effect, what are the long-term implications for relations um, with the with um, some of the Eastern European countries, Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, Slovakia, some places that have had challenges with, with democracy um, on their own. Um, we talked about, you know, border issues to the south in terms of within the European uh, Union. What's the implication of these developments for relations with those countries? In the past, there was actually substantial agreement between Germany and the Eastern European countries, and certainly also the Baltics, on how to react to Russian aggression. The migration crisis, in which it's worth saying Russia has certainly also played a role, and not a good one, um, has set these countries against each other. Um, with Germany asking for help and solidarity and the Poles in particular and the Hungarians saying, we don't want to take in any migrants, you called them in. But the greater concern now, uh, beyond Russian aggression and beyond um, the, the continuing existence of migration outflows, which are challenging Europe, of course, is the question of illiberal authoritarian changes to the constitutions in Hungary and in Poland. Um, that really is forcing other European countries, including Germany, um, to confront some very painful options, none of, none of which are good, about how to react to this. But um, it has to be said that what Hungary and Poland are doing contravenes fundamental European principles of how we order our constitutions. And Natalie, what is your sense of Italy's engagement with this set of issues? Well, I mean, there's there's an element of paradox here. Um, you know, the paradox is that paradoxically, politically speaking, you will have an Italy emerging from these elections that is certainly going to be more inclined to understand the rationale coming from countries in the Visegrad uh, group. Uh, but the paradox is that it's precisely those policies uh, sort of pursued by these governments that are harming Italy's interests so badly. Uh, so precisely how we're going to navigate this mess, I, I don't quite know. Um, but um, you know what, what I do know, and I come back to the reflection I was making earlier, is that um, you know it, compared to what we've seen up until now, Italy is going to probably be less effective uh, in pushing forward uh, certain reforms when it comes to uh, asylum and migration policies, uh, as well as holding up, if you like, those liberal values uh, that are the basis of, uh, of, the, of the EU treaties. Uh, and, and this goes back to the remarks that Costanz was making concerning you know, the difficulty in actually dealing with some of these violations when it comes to democracy and rule of law. So as we close, I want to ask each of you a final question, which is we've had a fascinating conversation of incredible, about incredibly important developments in Europe. Looking across the ocean from the United States and thinking about our listeners here, why should Americans care about this as we watch this unfold? What's at stake for people living at the, in the U.S. as how this is resolved in Europe? You want to start, Constance? 
Well, I think that's a legitimate question to ask uh, at a time when America seems to be more introverted than in a long time and seems to be considering whether it is really wants to be not just a steward of the liberal world order, but connected to world order. Um, I would say that the not just the stability and prosperity of Europe, but the existence and future flourishing of the European project is a first order national security interest for the United States. And not just because America has bases in Europe, but because we are your closest and best allies. We are the countries that share the most values and interests with you. We are geographically close to interests, to, to regions that are of deep strategic interest to you from Russia to the Middle East and Africa. And our ability to handle the challenges emanating from those reasons, either on our own or with you, ought to be of deep interest to you. And Natalie, how do you see this? Why should Americans care? Um, I mean, added to everything that Costanza said that I, I agree with, um, I would say the following. Uh, I think this has been, and in fact is, a broader conversation about the future of democracy. So Americans should be interested in the same way as Americans should be interested about the future of their own democracy. I mean, you know, I think what we're, we're obviously seeing, whether we're talking about the election of Donald Trump, whether we're talking about Brexit, whether we're talking about uh, the, uh, you know, in the end, turned out good uh, a competition between Marie Le Pen and Macron, but could have gone badly. Uh, whether we're talking about the Italian elections, I think this is a deeper conversation about the future of Western democracies, I would say, but democracies in general. Natalie, thank you so much for uh, sharing your, your views and helping us understand what's going on in Italy. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank you. And Constance, thank you as well for, for your perspectives. I think it was an excellent conversation and clearly important developments for all of us to continue to watch. Because as you all have articulately um, argued, uh, we all share a deep interest in how, uh, how these issues evolve and their interconnections to, to the things we all care about. Thanks very much again. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Also, thanks to Christopher, Jake, and John for submitting questions through the Deep Dish on Global Affairs Facebook group for this interview with Natalie and Constance. John, I think you heard Natalie say that she thought Renzi and the left's underperformance was linked to the decline of social democracy elsewhere in Europe. Jake, I hope you heard the links between what's going on in Italy and Germany and the development of anti-establishment politics in France and other places in Europe. And Christopher, I believe that you heard Constance talk quite directly about how the developments in Germany and Italy have an impact and will have long-term implications in Eastern Europe. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. If you have any questions about anything you heard, please feel free to ask them on our Deep Dish on Global Affairs Facebook group. And as a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who expressed them and not the institutional positions of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please subscribe and share the show with your friends. You can find us under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. Deep Dish is produced by Evan Fazio. Our research associates for this episode were Alex Hitch and Emily Baker. 
Joe Palermo is our editor. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.